Guide us, God, by your word, by your Holy Spirit, that in your light we might see light, in your truth find freedom, in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I was kind of thinking this week about uh, artwork in churches. Um, and most of our church artwork comes from uh, the stories of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There's a couple reasons for this. First, uh, these events of Jesus are uh, how we understand the gospel. They help us with that. And secondly, they're also really easy to depict. And so in this Eastertide series, uh, my friend Nathan, who designs our artwork with me, uh, made this for us with this really classic uh, icon of the resurrected Christ. We've been using this the last couple weeks uh, which we think is, is pretty cool. Um, but then we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Far more challenging to portray the Holy Spirit in the arts. And so we've got the dove, you know. On occasion, we see a flame or two here and there on church stained glass windows. But the Spirit remains really challenging, not only just to put into artwork, but also to put into words. And so the Spirit's actually been called the marginalized member of the Trinity. Anyone's ever heard that before? People just don't know how to talk about it. And so uh, they don't know what to do with the Spirit, how to talk about it, or how to understand the Spirit's role or origin. And so we've got, like, in different traditions, we have different things. In a more charismatic tradition, you know, people equate the Spirit to more ecstatic experiences in worship, like speaking in tongues. And so I remember when I was a kid, my... Uh, my mom's family comes out of a more charismatic tradition. So my brother and I went to, uh, to a really Pentecostal service one time when we were kids, and my mom kind of said, like, this is going to be a little different, you know? And we were, you know, just, <laughs> like, I don't think I said a word the whole time in there. Just my eyes were huge. Um, and then in other traditions, you've got kind of like the opposite, right? The spirit is this more vague spirituality that remains kind of somewhere out there. And so there's this kind of running joke in, uh, in seminaries and churches all over the world when anyone asks a seminary professor or a pastor um, a question about the Holy Spirit. So we're, we're advised to say this. We're supposed to say, the Spirit is an incomprehensible mystery. <laughs> and we just don't have definitive answers. And then as soon as we say this, we're supposed to like turn and run out the door before <laughs> taking any follow-up questions, right? And so that's the approach I'm going to take this morning. So, <laughs> all right, just kidding. I honestly think we can do better than that. So we're not going to have all of our questions answered for sure. Uh, but we can do better than turning and running away. I think there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to run from. Um, I really think that we can and should develop a really robust theology of the Holy Spirit. I think particularly in a new church plant like this, this is really, really important for us. And so the lectionary that we've kind of been following here for the last couple of months, it shifts gears from these resurrection appearances of Christ, um, and now it goes backwards and kind of anticipates the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? Anticipating the Christian day of Pentecost. And so today we're actually going to look at John's Gospel, uh, where Jesus himself promises his disciples that they're not going to be left alone without his presence even after his death resurrection and ascension. So we hear this from John 14, uh, 15 through 21. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned, I am coming to you. 
In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. The Gospel of the Lord. And so when I was thinking about this, I called it the Holy Spirit sandwich. That's just me. Um, mostly because I relate everything in life to food. Um, but also because this, the Spirit is sandwiched in between like two really simple sentences on keeping Jesus' commandments. So we'll break it down a little bit. We'll see what we can learn about the Spirit. So the question is, who is this Holy Spirit that Jesus promises? And so Jesus actually gives the Spirit a name. We don't get it in our English translation, but he actually gives it a name. He calls it Parakletos, right? Which is this much more exciting name than Ron. Um, it translates into our English Bibles as advocate or helper or counselor or comforter, depending on the translation uh, you read. But what it literally means is the one called alongside. And so we can actually learn quite a bit from a name. Now, I've shared this before in here, but when I looked at I looked my name up one time a little while ago, and it actually means bright fame. Okay? So we learned very little about me because of my name, because I'm still waiting to live into it. But here, this name, Paracletus, we actually learn a lot from this name. It's, it's important. The one who is called to come alongside us to help us, to encourage us, to defend us, to tell us the truth about ourselves, and to tell the truth about Jesus. We learn all of that just from this one name, this word that Jesus gives the Spirit. And so we kind of jumped in chronology around in the past month in the story of Jesus. Today, this story goes kind of backwards in time to the night of Jesus' arrest. He's just told his disciples of his impending death. This is, this is coming soon. And so the disciples must be thinking about the possibility of losing Jesus, their friend, and being left completely alone. And so Jesus knows that all of his disciples, including each one of us today, will at some time feel orphaned or alone or without guidance and support. And so it's interesting that Jesus used the word orphan in talking about his death. It was sure to strike panic in the disciples, the people that loved him dearly. He knew that in their panic, these disciples of his were going to scurry away like mice. They were going to desert him. They were going to deny him. He knew that they would feel completely alone when he was gone. And so you look at Easter, this joyful reunion of Jesus. He would appear to many before his ascension. But what about after that? What about for those of us who live after the resurrection? We're called to believe in a Jesus that we have not seen and heard. And so here's the conundrum. Why would anyone believe that real, authentic, abundant life comes from Jesus, a man who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, a man whom they cannot see. And the honest answer is that nobody would believe in a Jesus they cannot see, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't believe. So although we may not ever see the Spirit, we're given two really big clues in this passage about what the Spirit 
looks like. And the first is that the Holy Spirit looks like, and these words are sort of mine, adopted from a, from a, a book that I read, like a true friend. I like this, and I'll tell you why. The great Presbyterian Bible teacher, Dale Bruner, whom I'm a huge fan of, he wrote this massive commentary on the Gospel of John. It is just enormous, very difficult. And he was looking for a more contemporary translation for this paracletus, advocate or helper, or however you want to translate it. And his wife one day suggested this, that I like, true friend. Now, first of all, I love the fact that they were discussing this over dinner. Uh, this is their table dinner discussion. Um, instead of talking about like the kids' day at school or soccer practice, their favorite TV show, this family is debating the best contemporary name for the Holy Spirit. Um, not your average dinner conversation. Um, I imagine that this uh, wasn't the topic of your dinner discussion last night. No? Mine neither, if it makes you feel any better. Um, and so when they were having this debate and discussion about what word that he should go with in his commentary, his son said that he really liked his mom's suggestion of true friend, and he said that because he said that true friends, they do. They not only come alongside us to help us, they not only encourage us and defend us, they also tell us the truth about ourselves. They confront us when we're wrong. And so the second thing that this kind of text gives us this clue about what the Spirit looks like is the Holy Spirit looks a lot like Jesus. Jesus told his disciples that he would be sending another advocate. Well, another. Have you ever thought about, well, who was the first? Jesus was the first true friend, the first advocate, the first helper, encourager, comforter. And so Jesus says, when I'm gone, I'm sending you another true friend. He knew that he wasn't going to be around much longer. And so he promised them this true friend, this advocate who would come alongside to help them and encourage them when they needed it, to defend them, but also to convict them and to point out the places in their lives where they had missed the mark of God's intention for their lives. Another true friend doesn't mean another Jesus. In a very real way, the Spirit mediates Jesus' presence and helps to keep his promise that we will never be alone. And so we have in this one verse the three unique members of the Trinity. One God, three persons. Jesus said, and I, Jesus, will ask the Father, God, and he will give you another advocate, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. The Father sent the Son together. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit so that when we receive the Spirit, we have the whole triune God with us. This is a really cool promise. And there was a British pastor, and he was a young man. He was visiting some elderly women, and he would go each week and he would read the Bible to them. And one week he read from Matthew 28, 20, and Jesus said at the very end of Matthew's Gospel, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the world. And he said to these women, he said, isn't that a wonderful promise? And one of the older ladies looked back at him and she said, young man, it's not a promise, it's a fact. All of God's promises are facts. And so the real presence of the risen Christ is here now and with us forever. There's just this promise, but this promise is a fact that the true friend that looks very much like Jesus, in fact, is 
the spirit of the risen Christ himself, his own breath. It's no wonder that Jesus could say to his disciples that they knew this true friend who was coming. They did know him. They knew him really, really well. They knew him because they knew Jesus. And so we're promised that we will see Jesus clearly. I've heard a lot of people say this. If only I were around when Jesus walked the earth to witness him firsthand, things would be so much easier, would they? This, I think, is a common misunderstanding. When we read our Bible, look at the responses that people had to Jesus. Some, his own, I mean, just think about his own disciples and take them for a second. They betrayed him, they deserted him, right? And they were with him for three years. Some thought he was insane, others tried to kill him multiple times. And just like in our own day, many who had Jesus standing right in front of them didn't even recognize him when he was right there. And Jesus said, but you will see me because I live. And so he's promising his disciples from that day to our own day that we will know that the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son and that we are in him and he is in us. That we're joined to Jesus and to the Father by this unbreakable bond of love. And it made me think, I found this uh, saying that I love. There's a, there's a saying in the world of climbing. And it says, the reason mountain climbers are tied together is to keep the same ones from going home. <laughs> and so it's meant to be funny. Um, it's partially true. Mountain climbers are tied together to keep from getting lost. They're tied together to keep from falling off a cliff. They're tethered together for their own safety. And so there's another piece of truth here. When things get really tough up on the mountain, when fear sets in, I'm sure there were many a climber that was tempted to say, this is insane. I want to go home. And so the life of faith for a Christian is rarely ever easy. Like Thomas, doubt can set in, believing can become difficult, or we experience loss where despair seems to flood over us, or something in life that makes us feel as if we're going to have a hard time going on. And so Jesus knew that his disciples were going to have days like this, where they felt alone. Jesus knows that his disciples today, that you and I are going to have days like this. He understands that these days will be hard, really hard. And so the promise is that when we're in these days that we all have, the promise is that Jesus is going to be right there with us. Like this true friend, like climbers on a rope, tethered together. Not only tethered together to each other, but tethered to Christ himself, who gives us the gift of faith, who comforts us, who advocates on our behalf, who abides with us, who reveals himself to those that love him. He said, I will not leave you friendless or orphaned. I am coming to you. And so here we are a couple thousand years later in worship together, this miraculous group, honestly, of very different, unique people, but we're tied together to each other and to Christ himself. We're like climbers tied together. And then we're sent back out of this place, back out into the world, into loving service, sent into Christ's mission in the world, to our neighborhoods, to our communities, whom the Father loves deeply. And so Jesus, in our passage twice, gives us this simple command. He just says, keep my word. 
do what he says. Because those of us who are bound together by this unbreakable bond of love will want to place our trust in him. We'll want to be involved in Christ's mission in the world. And so when I looked at this a little more closely, to me it looks more like a gracious invitation than this strict command. We're invited to trust. We're invited to love one another. For it's in this trust and love that we are bound to each other and to Christ himself. In this trust and love, we're no longer alone in the world. We're no longer orphaned or friendless. And so I find it fascinating at the end of this that Jesus says that he experiences love from us when we live his way. When we live his way, Jesus experiences love from us. I find that fascinating. When we live like this, the promise is that we will see Jesus more clearly, that he will reveal himself more. This is one of my favorite sentences in the entire scripture. The more we place our trust in him, the more he reveals himself. Jesus makes himself real to us when we trust him and when we live out his love in the world. And so it's this reminder that when we're tied together to each other and we're tied together with the spirit that we can't fall too far without the rope catching us. A solo climber who falls is in deep trouble. But we climb together, and we climb with the Spirit that says that he's with us all the time, that we're not alone, who encourages us to keep going, who comforts us when we're having a hard time. And they're having a lot of fun. <laughs> Anyone? I'm almost done, but you're welcome. To <laughs> they're clearly having more fun than me. Our true friend, And this is the part that I think is maybe most important to leave with. Our true friend, this advocate, the Holy Spirit, is as close to us as our breath. This is what Jesus seems to be saying. That we're reminded that with every breath we take, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the resurrected Christ is with us. That His Spirit fills us, gives us the gift of life. We're reminded that with each breath, we're reminded that we're precious, that we're loved, that we're forgiven, that we're washed clean, that we're sent back out into the world to live for the very world that Christ died for. And finally, when we go, we don't go alone, but we go tied to each other. This is a good thing, mostly, right? It's a good thing. We're not only tied to each other, but we're tied to the Holy Spirit, abiding in the love of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our true friend. Will you pray with me? God, you are good. We thank you for laughter and the fun that the kids are having next door. And God, we just ask that uh, as they're having this great time in there, that they're also learning things about you. God, that you would be grabbing a hold of their heart. We just pray for Shay and all the great things that she's doing with the kids. Uh, I just love learning about you and coming to church and being together. God, we also thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that is as close to us as our next breath. God, help us to know you more and recognize that we're not left alone. May your Spirit guide us into more obedience so that we might be a blessing to those around us. And in so doing, we might see you more clearly. We 
you to reveal yourself more and more to us. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.